We're going to pick up with Ephesians 5 next week, Lord willing. Um, I thought before we dive into uh, Paul's teaching on marriage, we're going to look at Malachi chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 5 this morning. Malachi chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 5. If I were to uh, title this sermon, I'd probably entitle it, Ungrateful but not unloved. God's people are ungrateful, but they're not unloved. So before we read the passage and take a look at it, let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to uh, this passage, we ask that you would uh, enlighten our minds and our hearts to behold great things in it, that we'd see clearly your love for us, uh, despite many times outward circumstances, and that we'd be reminded of how it is that you've loved us uh, so greatly, that we would be those people who are grateful, who are thankful, and whose lives reflect that. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Malachi uh, chapter 1 at verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel." As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives. So, beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, this morning, uh, Malachi, just a little bit of history here, and we'll have that periodically through the sermon. Uh, Malachi prophesied about 450 uh, BC uh, prior to his prophecy. He's prophesying after the exiles have returned, but uh, knowing what happened uh, previously might be of uh, a little bit of use. In 722 BC, the northern 10 tribes were wiped off the map by Assyria. They're gone away. About 120 years later, in 587, 586, Judah in the south was wiped off the map by the Chaldeans. And the reason we're told that the Lord brought His people into exile is because they weren't honoring the Sabbaths. Uh, the Lord said uh, in Leviticus 25, 2, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six, you, you, six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. And the Lord uh, didn't just give them one year off in every seven. He also gave them a year of jubilee uh, uh, every 50 years. So every 50 years, they actually had two years off in a row, or that was supposed to be how it went. And the Lord was serious about this. Uh, uh, so serious, he said this in Leviticus 26, 33, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall have its rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest for the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. So before the Israelites even get into the, into the promised land, he says, look, every seven years, let the land rest. Let the land take a break. I'll, I'll feed you. You'll have plenty of food. Don't worry about that. You're going to celebrate me. But if you don't do that, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to clear you off the land. And for as many years as you didn't let it rest, that's how many years you're going to be gone. And what's interesting is that after the people went into exile, uh, uh, we're told 
that the Lord removed them for 70 years, meaning for 490 years, 70 times 7, for 490 years, they did not let the land get a rest. And so he says, look, you owe me 70 Sabbaths, <laughs> years as it were. You're not listening to me. All you want to do is make money and produce, and you don't want to rejoice in me and let me provide for you in the seventh year. I'm taking you off for 70 years, and then the land will get its rest, as it were, and then I'll bring you back. So that's exactly what happened. The Lord cleared them off in the exile. And now we're in Malachi. The people have returned under Ezra, Nehemiah. They returned under Zerubbabel. The people have rebuilt to a large extent. And yet, right before the Old Testament closes, we find the people in a really bad spot. The Lord's bringing difficult providences into their life, and they're grumbling again, and they're wondering, how in the world is it that you love us, Lord? How in the world do you love us? They're just ungrateful. Uh, they're right back into their same old habits. And I want us to see, uh, the, the Israelites were kind of like uh, children, right? They're not in Noah's day, which would have been the people in infancy. They're not in Abraham's day or Moses' day, the people in infancy. These are people that are grown up now. They've seen thousands of years of God's faithfulness to His people, and they should have been mature enough to know exactly how the Lord loved them. But, but they aren't. And so they, they throw out this, you know, this real kicker, right? Kids, kids tend to test mom and dad in different ways. Right? When they're young and they're two, like in the days of Abraham or so, when the, peop when the people of God were young, they, they just throw fits and they just flop, right, when they're, when they're, when they're not liking mom and dad and they want to they show them how much they hate them. And as kids grow older, they start rebelling in different ways. Maybe they just won't do it. They say no. They start hitting. But here's the kicker. When they get teenage years, they throw this one out sometimes. You don't even love me. You don't love me, mom and dad. And that, that, can, be a, that can be a huge tug. And the Israelites, as children who are grown up now, more mature, as it were, uh, they're looking at the Lord saying, prove that you love me. I don't think you love me. And so we're going to see God show us how much he loves us by, with two things, in two ways, with a reminder from the past and with a promise for the future. So God shows us in the present today how much he loves us with a reminder from the past and with a promise for the future. So first of all, with a reminder from the past, the Israelites were actually kind of walking into their mind here. They're asking the question, as we noted in verse 2, how have you loved us? Now, it's not like they were going around uh, asking this question to each other on a daily basis. How has God loved us? The Lord's reaching into their mind and heart and pulling this out because he's hearing this, saying, you're, you're asking this question. How have you loved us? We might have expected God to respond in uh, maybe a not-so-gracious way. Uh, maybe he's saying, look, I'm sick of you wretched people. <laughs> how, have, how have I loved you? Look, I, I did love you in the past a little bit, but I'm just tired of this. I'm done with this. I've proven how faithful I am through so many decades, centuries, and millennia now, but I'm done loving you. But God, because He's just unconditional in His love, He responds in such a, a, tender, a tender way, and He says uh, uh, something that is just fascinating. Uh, really, God's way of loving the Israelites and His approach to them, we'll look at that in just a moment, is, is really a model of parental love. Sometimes you see a snippet of it. I remember uh, one, one sister in Lethbridge, Alberta, her a uh, daughter had actually left her son-in-law and children behind, just totally walked away from them and tore her mother's heart out of her. She was praying for her every day. And uh, I, I, she said, I still get to have phone conversations with this daughter of mine. She's just destroyed all of us, and it's, it's really hard to know why she's doing this. And I said, what do you say to her, expecting that she would probably lay into her a little bit, maybe chastise her, tell her to go back? She said, 
uh, the, about the only thing I can ever bring myself to say is, look, I, I love you, won't you please come back? I, I love you, won't you please go back to your husband and your kids? They love you so much, they miss you. Beloved, that, that's sort of a picture of the way God loves his people. Uh, the Israelites, and we're the exact same way, uh, sinned against God, give them the high hand, say, we just don't want to be around you anymore. Uh, we've had enough of the way you love us, and God comes to them as tenderly as he comes to us and says, look, I love you. Won't you please come turn around? Let me, let me show you how tenderly I love you. And his response to them is, is quite fascinating. They're asking, how have you loved us? And God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, this sounds kind of odd. Like, why didn't the Lord just say, well, uh, I love you. Just take my word for it. So he goes back in history and says something fascinating. Now, it would have been powerful if the Lord had said, Noah and his family I loved, but the rest of the world I hated. They would have said, wow, yeah, you did, and we're part of Noah's line. Or Abram I loved, and everybody else in the Ur of Chaldees I left behind. They would have said, wow, yet you, th that is powerful. You have loved it. We're part of the line of Abraham, so you've loved us in him. It would have been uh, amazing to have the Lord say, Isaac I have loved, but Ishmael I've hated. Different mothers, but same father, pretty close to home. So, so Isaac I saved, but Ishmael I didn't. But the Lord goes, he goes, it's just so close, knit, so intimate. Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. And what the Lord is saying is this. You were literally millimeters apart from being rejected. Jacob and Esau were twins. They were in the mother's womb with the same father at the same time. They were millimeters apart from each other as embryos. They grew up together in the same stomach. They came out within seconds of each other, whatever that looked like. And I chose one, and you're of Jacob's line, and I hated the other. I did not elect to save uh, Esau and his line, the Edomites. Beloved, this is amazingly tender love, uh, mind-boggling love that should have caused their hearts to just stop. How have you loved us? Well, when you were millimeters apart, from a forefather that I didn't choose. I chose Jacob and you and not Esau and his line and had nothing to do with you. And I could have just as easily chose the other one. In fact, if God should have chosen anybody, it would have been Esau, right? Because he's the oldest. Instead, God chooses the younger, which in that day is just everything turned on its head. You don't choose to bless the younger over the older. And yet that's exactly what the Lord did. I could just have easily have chosen Esau would be another way of saying it, says the Lord. But I chose Jacob. That's how I've loved you. And, and, and you're part of, you're Israel. You're part of his line. I want us to pause just for a moment and, and just meditate on this as, we, as it were. Just think about this. What it means to be uh, chosen by God uh, rather than passed over. Uh, number one, election should rekindle our love for God. God's trying to get his people to love him to rekindle their love for him. They're, they're back to complaining again, to grumbling. And he uses election, which is fascinating. Why does he do this? He uses election to rekindle their love for him. It's often a doctrine thrown around in people's faces for fights, for theological controversies. But I want us to notice how the Lord uses it. He doesn't say, hey, I chose you. Go down to Edom where Esau's descendants are and make fun of him. Go down there and harass him. Tell him they got their doctrine off. He doesn't say that, does he? No, he's trying to get his own people to grow up and to love him more. So, beloved, God is using election to rekindle uh, 
uh, the love of his people for, for him. Uh, sometimes, like, if, if you're a Calvinist and you believe in election, sometimes uh, you're called the frozen chosen. That's a label uh, thrown around. And, uh, you know, there's always, always an element of truth to it, right? That, that, that's why the label sticks. That's why it goes. Because sometimes those who believe in election, we can just be absolutely unloving. We can say, well, God elected to save me before the foundations of the world. doesn't matter how I live or how I love. It doesn't matter if my heart is, is, is chasing after God and delighted and enamored with Him. It doesn't matter if I'm just ungrateful and complaining all the time. God elected me before the foundations of the world. The case is closed. Thus frozen chosen. Just absolutely unemotional to the Lord. No love toward the Lord or toward other people. And beloved, this election, this whole doctrine is supposed to warm our hearts to the Lord. Can you believe it? That after Adam and Eve fell into sin, in love, God predestined us before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1. Can you believe that God did that for anybody? Isn't it, doesn't it just cause our heart, I should just stop. God, you saw a mass of humanity that said, we can't stand your guts. Adam and Eve plunged into it. Every single person plunged after them. We don't want you. Pass us by. Leave us alone. We want life our way. I'm going to do it my way as the song goes not God's way. And God looked down at that mass of humanity and he decided to choose any of us. Beloved, that's just simply amazing. Because if it, you, if you, if it were you and me picking a team, we would have said, sorry. <laughs> I don't want grumblers and complainers and wicked people on my team. I don't, I don't pick my enemies for my teammates. Sorry. And God in his mercy decided to choose any of us. It's just amazing, amazing love. Election should also humble us. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose or elected what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being can boast in his presence. God, let me just pull all the words, God chose what is foolish, etc., and, and put them together, and here's what we are as Christians. We're foolish, Paul calls us foolish, weak, low, despised, and nothings. <laughs> How do you like that? That's what God chose, beloved. He chose us. What are we? What are the majority of Christians? Remember, not many were wise. Some, some, God sometimes calls to himself wise people by worldly standards, wealthy people, and, and people who are of the political class or of the noble class. He sometimes does that, but not often. And so what is the general characteristic of, of believers in the church? Foolish, weak, low, despised, and nothings in the eyes of the world. And God comes to us and he says, look, you're on my team. He comes to us when we're dead in our sin, as it were, and says, look, I'm, I'm choosing you, you're in. Because now you can't go out into the world and say, look, you know why God chose me? Because he needed me. Because I had so much more to offer than you have to offer him. Because when, when, when God, God builds an NBA basketball team with first graders, why? So that when the first graders beat the dream team, Nobody on the first grade team can say, you know what, we beat you because our basketball skills are better. And that Michael Jordan guy, we just took him down. No first grader can say that. Every first grader have to point to the coach and say, we have no idea. We can't even dribble the ball, really. And somehow, we beat you. We beat, we beat LeBron James and the LA Lakers. We, we won. Every first grader, every Christian would have to say that the only reason that we're able to, to, to be a blessing to this world and to go out and that God chose us, the only reason is because of his great love. It can't be because of us. It can't be because we're such great people. Uh, something that, another way of putting it might be this. You know, God, 
God chooses the drug addicts. God chooses the Jacobs, you know, the secondborns, not the firstborns. God chooses the ones stuck in prison after committing horrible crimes. God chooses people who come to the end of their life so often and who have very little to offer. People who are sick physically, who are sick mentally. People who have just gone down the wrong path like a Paul and absolutely just tried to turn the kingdom of God upside down in every, in every horrible way. God builds a team, brings them into the church, says you're mine, so that none of us in the church could ever boast, saying, Lord, I know you needed me. We all have to say, wow, God, you're amazing. What amazing love as we stand before the world. You know, sometimes if we've been in the Christian faith long enough, uh, uh, our perspective can actually become a very, very distorted. Um, uh, it, so parents sometimes understand this, right? How many of us uh, dip into our savings and retirement accounts, calculate up what's, how much money am I going to spend on every Christmas and birthday for this child from 0 to 18 years old, assuming the gifts stop at 18? What's all that monetary value going to be? Let's say it's 5000 bucks. I'm just going to give them a $5,000 gift when they're one year old. How many of us do that? And that would scare a parent to death, right? <laughs> I think, number one, a one-year-old will never appreciate it. So they're going to look at, by two years old, they're going to be like, Mom, everybody else gets a Christmas gift, and you're pointing them back to this $5,000 gift, saying this should last 18 years. Beloved, in some ways, this is what God has done for us. Before the foundations of the world, he gave us this amazing gift, and it's so tempting to look back and say, what else he got, Lord? What more does God have to do? How much more could he do, beloved, to show that he loves us? What greater thing can God do for you and me so that our hearts, till the day we die, would sing every second of the day God's praises. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. What, can you think of anything greater? If you've got to write, a, dear Lord, you, you could have done this. This would have been so much more meaningful to me than just choosing me to be part of your kingdom and to enjoy eternal life in Christ. Beloved, is there anything you could have done? No. Well, he did that before the foundations of the world. And sometimes after we've come to faith 10 years later, we forget this amazing gift. Sometimes after we've been in the faith for 50 years, we just lose sight of it. And we go back to grumbling, complaining, Lord, you've given everybody else this. Why can't I have it? Lord, so-and-so has been blessed in this way. Where's my gift? And it's so easy, beloved, to lose track of those things. Electing love also should put worldly gain into proper perspective. It should put worldly gain into proper perspective. Look, 150,000 people die every single day. That's the population roughly of about 10 Pellas. All around the world, 10 Pellas worth of people die every day. If we take Jesus uh, saying literally about the narrow path and the wide path, that means a majority of them go to hell and suffer under God's wrath forever. Some of them having rejected the gospel, some of them, they've never even heard it. Didn't even know there was a Jesus. Just sobering to think about. The vast majority of us as believers, as we go through life, before the Lord takes us, we're going to live modest lives, ordinary lives. Nothing will really be mind-blowing about the way that we live. But for some of us, we're going to grumble the whole way. We're going to be just like Israel. Sometimes we fall into this trap, I'm going to grumble the whole way. I get to die and go to be to heaven with my Lord because he chose me, not because I was great. I get to die and go to be with heaven forever, go to be with my Lord in heaven forever just because he chose me. And you know what? Before I get there, I'm going to complain every single day. It, it just doesn't fit, does it? 
God, you've given me this grace. I, I was a millimeter away from it. There was no reason for you to choose me. There just wasn't. I'm not great. I'm not powerful. I, didn't, I wasn't alive. I was just totally dead. I was a, you don't go to a graveyard and find dead people doing anything to themselves. They can't. You don't go to a graveyard and, and expect people to rise up out of the grave. They just can't, beloved. That's where we were. And God picked us up out of our deadness and made us alive in Christ. Beloved, the only thing left to do is to be thankful, to praise God, to say, thank you. What can I do now? I offer you my life. I'm yours. The total opposite would be just being ungrateful. How many of us, if we had a tape recorder around our necks, would be guilty of loving worldly pleasures more than heavenly rewards, saying, Lord, uh, like the Israelites were doing, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Lord, we're back in the promised land. This is post-exile, and things aren't going as we want. Prove that you love me. Pro prove it. And God doesn't say, well, I'm going to send you a, a, lot of, a lot of produce in your fields. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you tons of animals. He said, look, I chose you. You're mine. So regardless of how this life goes, regardless of how the 70 years of living as a Christian goes, regardless, beloved, of where God brings you in this life, and it could be all over the map in so many different circumstances, one thing we shouldn't wonder is this. How has the Lord loved us? He made you a child of His. That, that's how He loved you and me. That, that should satisfy us till our dying day. Well... John 3.16 is maybe the most powerful passage uh, which answers this question of, Lord, how have you loved us? Uh, we probably know the passage well, spoken some uh, quite a few years after Malachi wrote, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So how did God love the world? Maybe the most important word in that sentence is actually the word so. It's sometimes called a bad translation because so is so small and it's passed over lightly. Uh, Another way of translating the verse is actually this, in this way God loved the world. Or for God, uh, in this manner, in this way, thusly. It's actually a huge word with huge meaning. To answer the question, Lord, how have you loved the world? What have you done for the world? This is what I've done. I love the world in this way. I gave my only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So uh, notice what John does not say. Notice what God does not say in Malachi and what John does not say in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave everyone a three-bedroom house with attached garage. For God so loved the world that he gave everybody 80 years with really good health. For God so loved the world that he gave all of us a great job with a huge retirement savings and then 20 years after we retire to just go travel the world. For God so loved the world that he will prevent airplanes from flying into buildings. He gave uh, he won't allow young children to die. He'll give every one of us three meals a day. We'll be in perfect health, etc. But that's not how God loved the world. God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son. And there's no better way to love the world. There's no greater love than this in the world. And this is what the Israelites didn't get. And I hope we understand. Love it, it's so easy, especially in America. We are just materialistic through the ears, right? We're, how much do I own? How's my career going? What's my savings account at? What, what car do I drive, clothes I wear, house I live in, how are things going in my life compared to other people because we're individualistic. We don't get our identity from our society, right, or from our, even from our family. We get it from our individual success, as America defines it, using material possessions of some sort. How does God love me, Christians? We probably find ourselves answer, asking, look, so-and-so has this, so-and-so has this. Look, he laid down the life of his only begotten son, and he took care of eternal wrath 
that should have been yours and mine. He paid for all your sin, and he's promised you a future that will never end. And he said, in this life, you just wait. You pick up the cross, pain, suffering, difficulty. We deny ourselves, and we follow Jesus. Now is the, now is the cross, right? Soon enough will be the crown. God says, just wait for it. Hey, you're going to look around the world and see what looks like evidences of my love. You're going to look around the world and see billionaires who deny my name, who don't know Jesus Christ at all. Don't think for a moment that the billionaire's bank account is evidence of my love. We could paraphrase the Lord saying, as it were. Don't think for a moment that the person in perfect health with nonstop party life, all smiles, parading around to the world that everything's just hunky, don't, don't think for a moment that that is evidence that, of my love. I put my son on the cross. He died for your sins. You're going to be with me in glory. The whole ransom's paid. You're in. That's evidence of my love. That's how I've loved the world. If God only took care of us in this life but provided no escape from hell, here would be the good news. Believe in Jesus Christ. You will live more comfortably if you do. You're still going to hell for eternity to come, but you'll have a few good years to enjoy on this earth beforehand. Can you imagine that kind of gospel? Believe in Jesus. Life will go really good. You're going to die and go to hell. You'll be under my wrath forever. Believe in him. It's worth it, man. You'll get a few more years before you suffer eternally. That'd be no good news at all, beloved. Be no good news at all. The gospel is actually the opposite. Trust in Jesus. Difficulty will come into your life externally. You'll see a lot of other people flourishing more than you do who don't know the Lord, but afterwards there will be glory. We're exchanging, uh, we're exchanging uh, 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 temporary glory and enjoyment for temporary pain and eternal joy and eternal glory. Well, one more thing I want us to see is that God shows us how much He loves us, not with a, a lesson from the past, but also with a promise for the future. This is in verses 3b to 5. Let me read them. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom, Edom, by the way, is the country filled with the descendants of Esau. So Edom is short for maybe Esauites, if we want to look at it that way. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes will see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Take a look at the future of Edom. Verse 3, he's left his heritage, his, the people after him, the descendants of Esau, the heritage to the jackals of the desert. That's a horrible future. Verse 3, they may build, but I'm going to tear down. That's a promise for the future. Verse 4, the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So the Israelites are looking at the Edomites and looking at countries around them saying, we want it as good as they have it. The Lord's saying, would you look at their future? I'm, I'm, I'm going to destroy this Edom. I'm going to destroy Esau. And sure enough, Edom was wiped off the map beloved. And what the Israelites, the Israelites just couldn't understand that. Why would the Lord use these arguments about the future of Edom uh, uh, as, as a tool that might work powerfully in the lives of his people? Here's why. Because when the Israelites were taken into exile, the people of Judah, the last exile, when they were brought away, Edom was just south of them. The Babylonians came from the north to overtake Judah. And as they did, many of the people in Judah fled south to try and get away. And you know what the people of Edom did? They stood along the roads and they turned them over. And they actually worked for the Babylonians because the Edomites and the Israelites have hated each other. And so uh, what the Edomites are thinking is this. 
when the Persians let Israel come back, surely they'll, they'll let us rebuild because we actually helped this worldly country out. If anybody should rebuild, it'll be us. That's what the descendants of Esau would have thought. And yet the Lord's saying, look, they're going to try and rebuild and it's not going to work. In fact, you're actually the ones rebuilding. So the Lord is telling them their future is doomed. Your future is not doomed. That's how you can know that I love you. In the future, God has planned a complete reversal of this world. That's what it was for the Israelites and for Edom. What do we do with this? There's a couple things. It's possible that we might spend our days complaining, beloved, but on the last and glorious day of Christ's return, we'll come to see how much we should have been praising God rather than complaining to Him. And what I mean is this. Verse 5, your own eyes shall see this. You Israelites who have come back from exile, your own eyes are going to see this historical fact that I work for my people and against everyone opposed to you. You're going to see this in reality. And we see that we're going to see this no more clearly, beloved, than on the last day when all of God's people are raised from the dead and we get to see the Lord work for his people. Beloved, it's so easy to think that the, that, that the future uh, doesn't matter for today, but it does. If I told you from the authority of Scripture that this is your future, that Christ is going to come back and you're going to be with him in glory, and that those who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and God hasn't chosen are going to be under his wrath forever, if I told you that, would it change how you and I lived in the present? Would we love God more? Would we be singing his praises? Or would we be asking, Lord, how in the world have you loved us? In answer to that question, how have you loved us, the Lord says, just wait and see. So if we're sitting here wondering, Lord, how have you loved me? Know for sure this. On the last day, none of us will be asking that question. We'll see it clearly. It'll be earth-shattering, mind-blowing to see that there's many human beings who perish under the eternal weight of God's glory as he manifests his justice against those who didn't believe. And it'll be just as earth-shattering and mind-blowing to see all of us who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ be welcomed into heaven on the back of Jesus Christ by his work, by his blood, by the Father's electing decree, having contributed nothing to this but our sin. It's going to be amazing. How does God love you? He loved you in Jesus Christ. Well, I want to see more. He'll show us more on the last day. Let's pray.